This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, I'm Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Today's guest is Stephen Higashide, and his book is Better Buses, Better Cities, How to Plan, Run, and Win the Fight for Effective Transit, published by Island Press in 2019. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, let's start with tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, so my background is uh, as an urban planner. I went to New York University for uh, urban studies and then uh, went on to get my master's in urban planning. And I've worked in transportation policy at the local, state, and federal levels for uh, about 12 years now, um, doing everything from uh, watchdogging state budgets to advocating for safer streets in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, uh, and now uh, working as the director of research at Transit Center, which is a national foundation that works to make cities more just, sustainable, and prosperous through better public transit. And we do that in partnership with local communities. We provide grants to advocates who are working on campaigns to make transit better. We bring together people within the transit industry so they can learn from each other. And we conduct uh, a lot of our own research into what makes public transit attractive to people and how cities, transit agencies, and all the uh, government organizations that work together to make transit an attractive experience, what they have to do to make that happen. And that's the area that I work most closely uh, on. So what was, was kind of obvious, but I'll go into it. What was your motivation for writing this book? Well, you know, so we spend at, at Transit Center, I've spent so much of my time uh, making the case to city leaders that the bus is a really undervalued way to get around. And what I think is really striking is the fact that when you look at, well, what does it take to make bus service work? It turns out it's actually pretty simple things about making it fast, making it frequent, uh, designing the street to prioritize the bus. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into all the, all the details of what it takes, but it's not rocket science. It's really settled techniques. And yet you actually look 
at the bus systems we have in most U.S. cities, and too often it's a miserable experience. So I felt like it was really important to explore why that is, and that really uh, led me to this conclusion that while it's really important to understand the all the technical aspects of how you make bus service work, you really have to look at the politics and understand that the reason we don't have good bus service in most U.S. cities is because bus riders are marginalized in transportation politics. And so we have to change that. And so the book is about profiling the places that have done a lot of work to make the bus a great experience and telling both the uh, planning side of the story, you know, how do you create a frequent bus network? How do you decide where to put bus lanes? But also the political story. How do you build the coalition that actually gets it done? Oh, yeah, that's probably the hardest and most important part. Oh, yeah. I mean, in Indianapolis, for example, one of the cities that I profile, I mean, it it, it took multiple years and it really took, I think, a deep understanding from so the business community was uh, initially a big champion for transit, but at first they really thought that that meant things like, you know, building a light rail line to the airport. And that's really common in a lot of cities. People talk about quote unquote world-class transit and what they're really thinking is, oh, a shiny new rail line. But you actually go to places that have world-class transit. You go to places like London and Paris and you see that it's this big integrated system that, yes, there are, you know, there are great trains. But then you also have frequent, abundant bus service that feeds into that. And so anyway, um, and so over the years, the pro-transit coalition in Indianapolis grew to include realtors and the AARP and groups that were really focused on uh, retaining young workers and then also progressive faith-based advocates and folks who are really working to organize in Black neighborhoods, organize in low-income neighborhoods, and built a coalition that was strong enough to have several different messages about why transit mattered, to be able to go and talk to decision makers and go door-to-door and ask, you know, do you think Indianapolis is a fair city? Do you think Indianapolis is a competitive city? And, you know, both those conversations went back to the same place, which is that the bus network was really sparse. That was really hurting people's ability to thrive and get access to opportunity. It was really hurting businesses' ability to attract and retain a workforce. And so ultimately, uh, in Indianapolis, they uh, citizens agreed to raise their income tax and ultimately increase bus service by 70%. Wow. Well, kind of the, I'll go into kind of my first question. I mean, your first chapter is, uh, that seems to play along to it. How do we unleash the bus? Um, we unleash the bus by, I think first, it, it actually starts by understanding bus riders. There's this huge problem in both the popular imagination and in the planning world, where people assume that if you don't have a car, 
you're just going to accept whatever scraps the transit system gets you. In the planning world, there's this jargon that people use called where we divide transit riders into choice riders, people who have a car, and I guess that means they have choices, and captive riders defined as people who don't have a car. But the reality is everyone has a choice. And as planners, we have to treat every transit rider with the respect they deserve and understand that when transit service isn't good, folks are going to leave. Their choices might not be great. Their choices might be getting a ride with friends. It might be choosing to walk four or six miles to work. It might be saving up to buy a, you know, basically a beater car, which is going to be hard for them financially and and bad for the environment. Um, But everyone has choices. And so transit has to compete for every rider. And we also have to understand that uh, transit doesn't just have to meet the needs of commuters. Getting to and from work is a small portion of the trips that we take in a day. So if we're designing bus networks that people are going to choose, those are going to be networks that provide convenience service throughout the day so that we can get to the grocery store, for example, so that we can pick up our kid after school. It's about so much more than, you know, making that trip at 8 a.m. in the morning and 6 p.m. at night. So it really starts with understanding that you have to compete for every rider. And then Sort of the second step is understanding the technical aspects of transit planning, that people choose the bus when it is fast, frequent, reliable, affordable, and when it's a dignified and safe experience. When, you know, you don't have to feel like you're crossing an eight-lane road to get to the bus stop, and then you're just standing there and maybe on the side of an unpaved shoulder or something. Um, those are the fundamentals of service. And, you know, I don't think those are all that surprising. Those are, those are things that are certainly really obvious to bus riders themselves when, you know, when you talk to us about what we want uh, from a transit system. So I, it's interesting in your book, you know, that you're saying that public transit, uh, makes cities work. How does it make a city work better? Why? What does it do? Yeah. Um, so bus systems really play a big role in solving some of the most challenging urban problems that we face. Uh, inequality is worsening in the U.S. and in cities. And so you have to have affordable options for people to get around. Um, when you look at a place like San Diego or New Orleans, it is really common to see that if, you, if someone owns a car, they can get to maybe 90% of the jobs in the city. And if they don't, that shrinks to like 10 or 20%. So they just have, you know, a smaller set of options available to them. That's just, that is just untenable. And it forces low income families very often to buy cars in order to, you know, access the things they need. And then that turns into its own trap because, you know, all the research shows that, um, you know, very often low-income families that have a car, something goes wrong, the transmission goes out, or they get a ticket, and they're right out of car ownership again. It's a very, very precarious. So affordable transit provides a safety net to stop that from happening. 
And then there's just the basic geometric reality of cities that as cities continue to grow, the private car, you know, a transportation system that's built around the private car can't scale to match. Um, one of the things I note in the book is, um, you know, statistics from the National Association of City Transportation Officials showing that a general purpose lane of traffic carries maybe uh, 1,500 people per hour, while a bus-only lane can carry 4,000 to 8,000 people per hour. Uh, and if you devote the whole street to transit, like uh, like uh, has happened here on 14th Street in New York or on 3rd Avenue in Seattle or Market Street in San Francisco, now you're talking about carrying tens of thousands of people per hour. So there's just so much capacity that good old-fashioned public transit has to carry people around cities. And if you try to grow as a city without effective transit, you end up having to destroy big parts of the city to make it work. You have to get rid of neighborhoods to build five-story parking garages and 10-lane highways. And so transit allows you to grow as a city and maintain you know, all the things that make a city a place worth living, all that urban density, all that walkability. Well, yes, sir, you mentioned Miami uh, in your book, too. And um, since I live close to there, it's, um, yeah, you know, there's so many things that I would like to go to. But when I think about the travel time of an hour in traffic and an hour back, you know, it's discouraging when you're tired. Yeah. Um, so I write about Miami in a way that um, is emblematic of how decision makers ignore the bus. In a lot of places. So for years and years now, decision makers, policymakers in Miami have been fighting over where to put money from this sales tax, basically like, oh, which rail line to fund or which uh, high capacity bus rapid transit line to fund. It's this, this big geographic fight about where the money goes. And all the while, the, the like status quo of the bus network has just been awful. There's this really confusing tangle of the county bus service and dozens of municipal trolleys, which, you know, they're not coordinated with each other. There's not a map where you can see all of them in one place. There's no real-time information on those municipal trolleys. Um, the bus routes themselves fundamentally haven't changed in many years. So the city's changing, the bus system isn't, and is becoming gradually less and less relevant. The good news is that over the last couple of years, a citizen-led group, the Transit Alliance, has done so much work to change that. And it is, I think it's astonishing, but you see this in city after city, that these citizen-led advocacy groups in just a few months by uh, doing demonstrations and doing really effective data visualization showing the problem have completely reset the transit agenda in Miami. Um, and to such an extent that the Transit Alliance has actually been hired by the county to lead a redesign of the bus system. Um, it's a real example of what happens 
in a place where you go from having uh, almost no independent transit advocacy to one really energetic group. You can really kind of shake up that bad equilibrium. And so I think it's really encouraging. Um, you know, in the long run, I think in most cities, you need more than one group that's working on transit. But the story of Miami shows that it can start with a few interested and engaged people. Well, that kind of leads to the next question. You know, we talk about the chapter about uh, the people who use public transit. I mean, do these people, do they vote? Do they have a voice? Uh, how do they get organized? Um, yeah, I mean, often the challenge is that transit riders tend to be the folks who are marginalized in the political process. They're uh, in most places more likely to be low income. They're more likely to be people of color. Um, and I think that organizing transit riders, I think there are I think there are a couple sort of imperatives that come from that. One is that it is really important for the philanthropic community to understand how important organizing transit riders is in driving change. In the places, uh, in, in a lot of the cities that I write about where a lot has been done to make the bus system better, there are great advocacy organizations like the Riders Alliance in New York City, an organization called the Transportation Choices Coalition in Seattle, Ride New Orleans, uh, the Active Transportation Alliance in Chicago. These are all foundation-funded organizations. And there are a lot of bad examples of foundations uh, often instead supporting things that are really a government function. For example, there's this foundation in Cincinnati, the uh, Hale Foundation, which actually literally uh, is spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to help subsidize the streetcar running downtown. If that money went to an advocacy organization instead, that group could influence the way tens or hundreds of millions of dollars are spent on transit. Uh, in Detroit, the Kresge Foundation has put millions of dollars, again, in building a streetcar downtown. That really should be going towards political action and advocacy instead. Um, I think a second thing that's really important is that people within public agencies should actually do a lot of thinking about how they set up their public processes in a way that makes it easier for folks in the community to participate and actually um, helps grow the capacity of some of those uh, organizations. So I write about Metro Transit, which is, this is the transit agency in the Twin Cities. And they're doing this project focused on how to site bus shelters. And instead of doing the traditional form, or instead of just doing like traditional forms of public engagement, having a bunch of open houses, putting a survey online, they actually contracted with a uh, about a dozen community organizations to do that outreach in their neighborhoods. And that was important for a couple of reasons. The first is um, it was more, they got 
much more equitable input. They got responses to their surveys that were actually demographically representative of the people who were riding the bus in the Twin Cities. That's pretty hard to do. But also, because they were paying these community organizations, that makes these organizations stronger. And they're the exact same types of organizations that later on can go out and advocate for transit you know, to their elected officials in the political arena. So partnering with community groups often, you know, it's not just the right thing to do, it's really strategic for transit agencies. So what, uh, well, I wanted to go that because I got my master's degree in landscape architecture, and this all kind of plays in together. Um, you're talking about uh, pedestrian infrastructure and how your bus stops are sited, how they're designed, how they're developed. Uh, what role does that play in uh, public transit? You know, it's hugely important. Um, most bus trips involve walking to and to or from, or probably to and from, the bus stop. And that means that you can have a bus that comes every 10 minutes, that is fast, that is affordable, but it's still not going to feel like a great experience to people if they're just standing in some grass, or if it feels really dangerous to cross the street in order to get to the bus stop. So the transit experience and the pedestrian experience are basically the same thing. And this is a big challenge for transit agencies because uh, in most cities, it's not coordinated. You know, there's one agency that operates the bus and then there are local governments that are responsible for streets and sidewalks. And sometimes, you know, there's not like a history of working together. And so it's really important for... um, for someone, whether that's someone in the transit agency or someone in city government, to really take the lead and try to bridge that gap. In a lot of cases, it does turn out to be the transit agency if uh, if it's a large transit agency working with a bunch of small municipalities. So just to give a couple of examples, I write about the transit agency in the Portland, Oregon region. They did this great planning study looking at where would you have to build sidewalks and better crosswalks and better pedestrian infrastructure around bus stops that have a, a lot of potential for ridership? You know, they did that planning work and then they went around and sold all the, you know, the smaller municipalities in the Portland area. Uh, you know, they tried to convince them to put some funding towards it. Um, and, uh, but I think more Broadly, sidewalks, basic, you know, sidewalks in the U.S. are an outrage, like just to say it outright. And we have to seriously rethink how we care for sidewalks and how we fund them. You look at uh, Nashville or Austin or Denver. These are all cities that have hundreds of millions of dollars worth of sidewalk gaps or huge swaths of the city don't have sidewalks at all or don't have sidewalks that are uh, ADA compliant. And even older cities like Philadelphia and New York City, you know, they have had to settle these uh, billion dollar lawsuits on insufficient curb ramps. And so what we are doing now where we basically say in many places that it's private property owners' responsibility to maintain sidewalks 
and that the way you enforce the ADA is by hundreds of lawsuits, it just doesn't work for like people in cities. It doesn't work for transit riders either. Uh, I really think we have to find a bigger solution, which might involve federal policy, you know, and making the Americans with Disabilities Act a funded mandate instead of the unfunded mandate that it has been. Yeah, I agree. Um, so many cities uh, just lack good walkable sidewalks. So people like to walk. It's it's not only that. It's it's uh, why pay for a gym membership when you can, you know, get 30 minutes of walking in back and forth here and there. And there you go. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, walking and taking the bus actually can be a really wonderful way to see a city, you know, just on sort of a personal level. You know, when you um, when you're on a bus, you get this great street level view of a place. And then, you know, walking obviously is a great way to experience the city. I was I just had that experience in Houston, actually, you know, maybe not a place necessarily that everyone thinks of as a great transit city or as a extremely walkable city. But actually, a lot of the neighborhoods inside what, you know, inside the loop, as they put it, a lot of the close in neighborhoods are really walkable. And there's a pretty good grid of frequent bus service. And so get it, being able to experience that uh, at street level and not feel like, you know, I had to take a car everywhere to get around was a great way to experience Houston. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yes, well, yeah, here in the Keys, it's, uh, yeah, all those issues about uh, the bus is relevant here. And I've kind of one time thought, I just should just walk the sidewalk because you have to travel so fast in a car and um, you just, you can't even see what businesses, I think it's bad for business. You, you can't even see the businesses that are available because you're just whipping past them, trying not to get run over by somebody else either. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And, um, you know, when we talk about uh, when we talk about taking away lanes for parking and giving it over to buses, putting in bus only lanes, which you really have to do to make the bus reliable in congested urban neighborhoods, often businesses kind of freak out. There's this initial fear about, uh, oh, you, you know, taking away potential business. But then if you actually survey customers, if we survey people on the street, a lot of people in places, you know, like in Boston or New York City or San Francisco, where there are lots, you know, people fight over parking all the time, but you talk to business customers, so many of them are arriving by transit. And, um, you know, here in 14th Street in New York, uh, the city recently made it essentially a, a a transit only street or it's for transit trucks, biking and emergency vehicles. So they really de-emphasized private vehicles. And, you know, there was this big, uh, there's a lot of concern from businesses, but now, you know, several months in, everyone seems to think it's working great. It's such a, it's such a pleasant place to be. 
it hasn't impacted business and it hasn't impacted traffic either on the side streets. Well, I was just thinking, I was like, you know, in the evening, I'll give a plug to one of my favorite places. There's a, a Key Largo chocolate shop down here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I didn't have to jump in my car and in the evening and drive all the way down there, park, get out, go, you know, if I could just go out and jump on uh, public transit, I'd probably go down there at nine o'clock at night and eat a little extra chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, being on transit and walking, you, you just get to explore neighborhoods a little more. You get to discover it at your own speed. And I find that that is really hard to do when you're driving. Yeah. So let's see, you talked about some case studies. What are some case studies uh, that worked? Um, so one of the places that is like probably the foremost example of a new transit city in the United States is Seattle, where over the last couple of decades, they have not only built this great uh, light rail spine, but they've also put in so much frequent bus service and voters approved these uh, transit expansions multiple times. They have gone from, I think just over the last five years, from a situation where uh, roughly 25% of residents in Seattle were within uh, a convenient walk of frequent bus service. Now that number is 72%. So it's been a dramatic leap in uh, how relevant transit is to people's lives. And I think it's really important to look at the ways in which you know, there was this great coalition that came together, uh, convinced voters to approve this transit vision. But as uh, as the political support for transit grew, they also did so much work on their government institutions to be able to deliver transit more effectively. So, you know, maybe uh, five or six years ago, Seattle was like most other cities, there actually, you know, there was barely anyone in city government whose job it was to improve transit. And now there's a 25-person transit division inside the city's uh, transportation department. And that's because even though the city doesn't run most of the transit service, they have the authority over the street. They have the authority to put in bus-only lanes and transit signal priority. And you have to have the staff and the structure to deliver those projects quickly so that you can do it all over the city instead of hiring consultants to do one project here and one project there. You know, they're constantly doing improvements, large and small, and it's this real continual machine of improvement. Um, And just to give one more example, the county bus agency, King County Metro, has a team of traffic engineers whose job it is, is to study uh, where would street design changes, where would traffic signal changes, how would that speed up the bus, primarily outside Seattle. So they have that, they play that similar role of of, uh, going out and trying to convince municipalities to speed up transit because they've got planning capacity and the small cities don't. And so there's just been so much work, uh, not just, you know, not just raising taxes to deliver more service, but actually thinking about how do you build 
strong public agencies that can deliver projects quickly. And that's super important. Is, is there any other uh, examples that you're working on now uh, that work or what, what's some that um, don't work? Um, well, you know, this is, uh, I write about this a little bit in the book and I've also uh, overseen research pertaining to it at Transit Center. There was this pretty high profile failure at the ballot in Nashville. Um, and so many of the so many of the reasons why the ballot measure failed um, was because the folks who were sort of cooking up the transit plan did it in a way that wasn't inclusive. You know, people of color weren't represented at the decision making table. They weren't really consulted in the plan. Um, and so what, what came out was this extremely light rail, heavy plan uh, without, with, without all that much uh, bus service improvement. And it became really hard to sell it in, for example, black neighborhoods, places where they really, really needed support. Um, and of course, there were there were many other factors. There was this really high profile scandal in the mayor's office, um, but so much of it came down to planning in a way that was not inclusive, to not doing the real coalition building work, to assuming that because there was a lot of money that the business community was had put in, because they had great consultants, that that was going to get it over the finish line, uh, and you know, they didn't have a real genuine coalition with support from many different sectors of the civic world. So that's a pretty, um, you know, that's one recent failure. Um, and then I also write in the book about some of the challenges that happened during the uh, Rahm Emanuel administration in Chicago, where, you know, there was one high-profile failure of a planned BRT project, and it seemed to have scared the city off from doing anything for many, many years. Um, that's why I think, again, it's really important to think about uh, what I talk about as tactical transit projects, projects where instead of planning a bus quarter project for multiple years, cities now are often like putting some paint or cones on the street uh, you know, having that pilot bus lane just for a few weeks, serving riders and studying how the street works. And then after those few weeks, often those lanes are becoming permanent. So it's a much faster process. When you plan a bus project it, in this multi-year project, it often creates lots of opportunities for homeowners and transit opponents to organize against the project while also making it really hard for bus riders themselves to you know, make their voices heard in support of it. On the other hand, when there's a tactical transit project, um, you know, it's like all of a sudden thousands of bus riders are actually experiencing what it would be like to have faster service. So they have much more of an incentive to, uh, you know, to talk to elected officials. So I think that's another way in which like how you set up the public process has plays a huge role in the outcomes you get and 
who is advantaged uh, in the political scene. Uh, does that go to, in your book, you talked about gerrymandering the bus. What What is gerrymandering a bus? Um, well, I mean, in that chapter, really what I was trying to get at is that um, there are so many ways in which our regional politics and state politics are anti-city, and that translates into anti-transit politics. So, for example, um, federal transportation policy gives immense power to state departments of transportation. And if you're a state and you want to expand a highway, um, you basically have a blank check from the federal government to do it. But that, uh, you know, that policy regime doesn't give the same freedom to transit agencies. And so you see, you see, like you want to improve transit in Nashville, you've got to go to the voters and you got to, you got to fight this campaign. Whereas if the Tennessee DOT wants to widen the highway, they can just go ahead and do it. At the regional level, there are sometimes the way that uh, politics has created the governance of transit agencies turns out to be anti-city. So you look at the, uh, you look at DART, the transit agency in Dallas, and the board is set up in a way that effectively gives the suburbs of Dallas veto power over decisions, which means that you actually look at the kind of service DART runs. They've been spending uh, decades and billions of dollars building light rail out into the farthest reaches of the region, places that have very little demand for transit, and meanwhile, the bus system has been starved. And so they're overcoming that requires a lot of political work and coalition building. So in your one of your final chapters of the book, it's winning mindsets and growing movements. How do you, what's the best practices to, uh, to make changes? And, you know, um, okay, I do have a car, but if, uh, if I had an option to take, um, a public transit, either bus, rail, or whatnot, as long as it worked, I, I take it. Yeah. And I think that, um, that speaks to the need to have really strong coalitions of groups working outside government. You want to have groups that are organizing transit riders themselves because that is going to be really important in any neighborhood level discussion, you know, about like whether to put, whether to put a bus lane down on a particular street, for example, you have to have neighborhoods organized, you have to have transit riders organized, but more broadly, you also have to have, um, in order to really transform transit systems, I think it's often very important to have buy-in from larger sectors, business leaders, um, healthcare organizations, um, and you can, and and the more types of support you have, the more reasons and the more messages you have about why transit matters. So to your example, um, you know, you can, you can appeal to people who don't ride transit in all sorts of ways. There is the, you know, there is self-interest, you know, there are a lot of people who drive, who want to drive less. You know, there's actually lots of polling showing that we're, we are not actually a country where people are in love with their cars. 
we're actually a country where lots of people feel pretty trapped by car dependence, and we and Americans really want additional transportation options. So there's self-interest. There's also, I think, people want to vote for and support investments in transit that are going to make their community work better, that are going to help like the nurse get to the hospital on time. Um, when you look at the reasons for why people uh, would vote for like a transit ballot measure, uh, only some of it is self-interest. A lot of it has to do with people wanting to feel like they are making their city a better and more functional place. And the great thing is that bus service is an extremely important way to do that. So, you know, that that belief actually is quite warranted. Well, I want to go back to a second. You talked about a little bit about health care. Um, the underserved areas uh, where they may or may not have a car available and may or may not have reliable public transportation, how does that affect their health care? Oh, man, it causes all sorts of terrible outcomes. There is um, there's some good research done by a person named Anson Stewart, a, a researcher at MIT, um, looking at the impact of unreliable transit on access to healthcare in the Boston region. And it's just so common for people to miss their appointments which creates this whole cascading effect of outcomes on their own health. Um, and I think we have to talk a lot more about the reliability of transit as something that's, that's so important. Um, sometimes people, you know, propose a transit project and they, and they talk about the effect of, you know, they, they say something like, Oh, you know, it'll make your trip three or four minutes faster on average. But often the real benefit of a bus lane is, is not the speed improvement on an average day. It's the fact that it makes the trip much more reliable so that on a bad day, you're not going to be half an hour late anymore. Maybe you'll be 10 minutes late. That makes a huge difference. Um, and so much of, pri- of what prioritizing the bus does is it takes the sting out of those bad days when traffic's a little worse or it's raining or something. Um, there's also been good research in... New York City from um, a group called the Center for an Urban Future, looking at what a tough commute home healthcare aides have. You know, they're often taking the subway, they're often taking the bus to a subway to another bus. And because the system overall is so unreliable, they are leaving, you know, 40 or 50 minutes earlier sometimes than they would otherwise have to. They build in these huge buffers. And it's enormously stressful. And so that has implications both for like home healthcare workers themselves, but also the the people that they are caring for and everyone's ability to age in place. So there's a such a big connection between transit and healthcare. Oh, that's that sounds like a, another book. I mean, transit, uh, transit and transportation is so connected to like every other sector. That's one of the things that really sucked me into working on it. Uh, this, this feeling that, oh, you know, this is not just one narrow policy area. 
it actually kind of affects everything, uh, everything that has to do with how we live our lives and how cities work. It's kind of like uh, blood circulation. It's got to go everywhere in the body. We've got to be able to go everywhere to get everything we need. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and uh, there's this anecdote from earlier in the book. Uh, there's this uh, professor at the City University of New York, Kafoy Atto, who's talking about, uh, he, he was on a bus in uh, the suburbs of New York City, and I think it was Poughkeepsie, and there was this proposal to like make all these changes to the bus system, and he was overhearing all these other folks on the bus talking amongst themselves about what it would mean for them. And the bus driver says, wow, you guys have great ideas. You should go to City Hall and like testify and talk about what this is going to mean for you. And no one on the bus was willing to take him up on that offer because they knew that if they went to the, you know, the public hearing, which was at, you know, I think it was at 6.30 p.m., they knew that if they went and testified, the buses were going to stop running and they wouldn't be able to get home by the time the meeting was over. And that is so illustrative of the way that if you don't have, say, the right to transportation, the right to move around the city, it really impinges on all your other rights as a citizen, even your right to participate in, you know, self-determination. Um, so it just, it just really underscored for me, like, what the stakes are when we talk about buses. Oh, yeah. And that's such a great note to leave this on. Uh, great thought. Um, well, Stephen, uh, I know we've taken up a lot of your time today, and, and I really want to thank you for being here. This book is very insightful. Um, so can you tell the audience, what are you working on now? Um, and I am so excited about some of the research that we're doing here at Transit Center. Some of the things to like look out for in the coming months, um, we're working on this uh, policy document on what should a Green New Deal include when it comes to public transit policy. And we also have this uh, big research project with a group at the Center for Neighborhood Technology in Chicago looking at four transit agencies that want to further racial and social equity. How can they better analyze their own service, their own fares, their own capital investment decisions. That's one of those things that, you know, maybe sounds a little wonky, but it's, it makes a huge difference in actually implementing and getting to a future where we have transit that is, uh, you know, attacking some of the inequities that exist in society. Um, so there's, there's plenty more, but those are two projects that uh, just are so exciting to me. And I, I can't wait to you know, see them out in the wild. <laughs> well, if you haven't read any more books, you have to send them to me. Yeah, sure will. Um, well, again, uh, for audience, this book has been Better Buses, Better Cities, How to Plan, Run, and Win the Fight for Effective Transit by Stephen Higescheid, published by Island Press in 2019. And again, this is Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. <laughs>